0: Talking with Christopher Blattman about war. The book is Why We Fight. Um, I, I have to tell you, being in central Illinois here, I love mm-hmm. the, the part where you suddenly open a chapter with uh, Ron, uh, Eureka, Eureka, Illinois. <laughs> People don't know it. And, of course, that's Eureka College where Ronald Reagan came, and that was your point about what he spoke about, which was uh, is better to deal than fight. Correct. And that was the point of his speech. Uh, when he came to Eureka, but I just liked, and this has nothing to do with our topic of war, but the fact that Eureka lost its title as the pumpkin capital to Morton. So that, that's, <laughs> and, and Reagan came back for a parade during the pumpkin fest. So just a little aside there. I had to ask you one question because I'm not up to world affairs. You mentioned the conflict in El Salvador in mm-hmm. Central America. What is the present situation there? Is it Sort of ongoing rebels, uh, guerrilla fighting, or what? What's what's been going on? Because you cited as uh, I think as something that went went on in yeah. the
1: eighties or nineties. Correct. You know, there's a unfortunately there's a different kind of violence that's going on there now. There was uh, a, a leftist insurgency against an extremely repressive sort of dictatorship long ago. Now we have a dictatorship in power there of a different nature. Most of the it solidified control. Uh, but the, the violence that's going on there is actually between powerful gangs. Uh, and, and so a lot of it is these non-state actors that are fighting rather than somebody fighting against the state. And, and I've just begun spending a little bit of time there. Most of the time in terms of, you know, my day job actually is trying to understand not just rebel groups competing, but also street gangs and mafias who fight. And, and I work mostly in Chicago and in medellin which are sort of these two big examples chicago the gangs have not managed to find peace and and it's we all know it's quite violent uh and then medellin colombia where they actually where the homicide rate is maybe a third or quarter despite having more gangs and it's because the gangs have been able to find peace
0: we're talking with christopher Butman about war and and conflict really as he as he just mentioned not just the wars between countries but the wars between gangs and people well let's take chicago for a minute because that's where you are at the university of chicago and you're on the south side of chicago which yep. uh, you know not to say that's where all the problems are but obviously it's it's a you know an area that's been troubled if that's a, a fair word uh, yep. for many years but yep. so what, is there a plan i mean because you mentioned they don't seem to be able to get along. So what do you do in that situation? What do, not just the police, because it always comes back to it's a police problem, but in your case, you're an accommodation. Um,
1: yep. well, what, is, what, are, what are you looking at? You know, you know, if you went to the doctor and halfway in, you know, into describing your symptoms, he said, you need Tylenol and radiology. You'd be puzzled because you're like, well, you don't even know what's wrong with me. Because we expect our doctors to diagnose us before they treat us. And I think one of the problems is we don't spend enough time really trying to understand why these groups are fighting before we sort of think about, and, and before we trot out like, oh, New York City did this, or let's increase the number of policemen. And that that just doesn't make sense, right? And right. somehow we forget that. So when it comes to diagnosis, like I think, you know, I, I went through two of the five reasons that that people ignore costs. And those both actually apply to gangs. Uh, gang leaders are unchecked. They don't have to bear most of the costs that they inflict upon the community. And sometimes they do have these intangible incentives like sort of personal glory or usually it's vengeance, right? There's a lot of, a lot of these killings are angry vendettas in long running blood feuds, right? Which is, which is something that is age old and, and isn't just gangs, right? It's, it's, it's in our own past, it's our villages, it's our ancestors. But the one that people underestimate is the role, the third one I mentioned, uncertainty, right? And. You know, one of the guys I talked to and I know uh, who's, who were trying to reform and we developed some programs, he, he went through and he was successful. Uh, he talked about how, you know, when he was a drug seller, he said, some, the first time somebody came and stole my drugs, I thought, if I let this guy get away with this, you know, he thought I was weak. And if I let him get away with this, I'll never, you know, I'll get killed or I'll never be able to really sell again. They're just, everyone's going to rob me. And so I have to build a reputation. And so I, I you know, I don't really want to, but I'm going to have to kill him. And he had to do that a few times to establish reputation until he sort of, in some sense, you know, really regretted what his life had become. Um, but you only need reputation amidst uncertainty, right? There's no need for reputation if everybody knows how strong you are. You have to construct reputation, and and so he that that was like a real fundamental driver. It was strategic. It was the, in some sense, the cold calculating optimal thing for him to do. Not because he was angry and vengeant, and not because he was unchecked, but because strategically that was the optimal thing for him to do. And so you know, if our solutions don't take some of these things into account, then we are not going to stop the shooting. Right. And that's,
0: and that's, of course, uh, a, pr- a problem, not just in Chicago, but but all over the world, as, as, as you are, you know, obviously uh, chronicling in the yeah. book. Uh, I
1: mean, the, the United States has, if you, part, part of what, you know, their use invasion of, of, of Afghanistan, and staying there for 20 years, one big reason for that is they were, worried that somebody else was going to attack them in the same way the Taliban, it was rather Al-Qaeda had attacked uh, America and they had to construct a reputation because the United States' resolve was not, was not well known. And so these dynamics of needing to have reputation to protect oneself and using violence sometimes to build it is a dynamic that plays out on American streets and it plays out in American foreign policy.
0: Talking with Christopher Blatman about war and, and uh, conflict, Christopher, can you tell us a little bit about, it's in your book, but I I found it interesting and I did not know much about it, but John Prentegast Mm -hmm. uh, in Africa.
1: Can you give us a a kind of a short uh, summary of of his story? Yeah, I mean, John, I met through uh, this book and he he runs around, his best friend is George Clooney and and his other best friend is Don Cheadle. And, And so anything you've ever heard about their activism around... Darfur and genocide in Darfur is, is really the, their work with John Prendergast, who really took this activist approach, trying to raise awareness and just get congressmen and, and university clubs and, and, and churches and everyone just to get really angry about this. Um, and he kind of felt like, you know what, this wasn't working, right? And it just wasn't enough. Because these leaders would still invite him to tea, the, the Sudan's president would sort of laugh. He would get a visa, and and they they to get in the country, right? And and they'd sort of invite him for tea. And, and he thought, you know, I can't really be hurting these people if if they kind of chuckle at me. And so he 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 got rid of all the activists, he um, and all the organizers. And he and what he did is he he hired a bunch of like forensic forensic accountants and the ex Treasury Department people who traced money. And he formed an organization called the century. And what they did is they started just tracing the money and, and they started figuring out who are all the enablers, you know, this Israeli diamond merchant, this Panamanian lawyer, this so-and-so, this so-and-so that are actually helping these, these dictators and autocrats and killers to, to do what they do. And let's go after them and let's work with the banks and the treasury department to freeze their money and, and, and and he knew he was effective because very quickly he stopped getting asked for tea, and he certainly can't get visas there anymore.
0: <laughs> when you when you
1: stop getting asked for tea, you know you're making Edway. That's good. Um, and you know what he was doing. He was in. He recognized. Remember, I started. I said, unchecked leaders ignore the costs of war, and this is what targeted sanctions are intended to do. And this is what they're intended to. They were intended to deter Putin. They didn't. They don't always work. But they were to sort of say, listen, you're going to ignore the costs. Well, I'm going to develop a tool, targeted sanctions, that'll make you face some costs of your actions. And therefore, even if you still do it, uh, at least the next, you probably are less likely and the next guy certainly is far less likely. So we're going to deter this kind of violence in future.
0: You, you have a, a good uh, sort of, a I think, a good sort of a, an argument, if that's the right word, on saddam hussein because Mm -hmm. so much has been made of the weapons of mass destruction that weren't there it's it's looked at as the u.s uh, you know ploy but you you bring out another point that it was saddam's gamble right that he kind of played that explain that if you would to, to folks that maybe have forgotten already because it's been a little while
1: yeah like look i mean we often a lot of the time we focus on a lot of people like to focus on the blood for oil and some of the selfish motives that the United States went into Iraq and they like to focus on the intangible incentives of the George W. Bush administration, you know avenging his father and, and and ideals of democracy in the Middle East and so forth. And those are important. I don't want to dismiss those. Um, but it's also important to see the strategic incentives for war that 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 sort of selfish calculators will make. and the fact that um, the fact that it obviously Saddam, we know now that did not have weapons of mass destruction. He'd given up his nuclear program. The, but it was uncertain whether and how fast he could restart it. And if he did restart it, it would be a tremendous shift in power in the Middle East that uh, vis-a-vis Iran, you know, and Iraq versus Israel, like it would threaten, potentially threaten the existence and the influence of Israel, of Saudi Arabia, all of these actors. And that power shift was would be so great that the calculus there is to say yes, wars costly, but we are willing to pay that cost merely to lock in our advantage with a hundred percent uncertainty, hundred percent certainty, and prevent this possibility, even how no, ever, you know, no matter how small, from ever happening because it would be catastrophic for the national self-interest. And so I you know, you can still get upset at this war if you want, but I'm saying get upset because of the strategic and self-interested calculus as much or more than you get upset about blood for oil or avenging my father or whatever, because I think that's a, that's a distraction from like the the core strategic incentives that lead some nations into war.
0: Talking with Christopher Blatman. One more thing, Christopher, the, uh, present, uh, just i don't know what to call it but but the conflict is, yep. is such a soft word going on in uh in ukraine mm-hmm. um wh- you know i think about this china uh we because we, you hear a lot about china uh increasing their defense and and mobilizing and and becoming the next big power uh what do what do you are they waiting on something there i mean because it seems like you know you don't hear anything or at least i haven't heard anything that doesn't mean there isn't something going on but what what is their status when you when you look at the world when when there's a big uh, war, well a war going on yeah. um on on kind of on their watch what's what's their part in this thing so
1: you know right now i mean if 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 i were the Chinese leader right now, I'd probably be thinking about how to use this to my advantage because Russia's been revealed to be weaker. And and so I won't fight. You know, one of the first points I make in the book that we haven't had a chance to talk about is that is that actually because war's so costly, 990 times out of a thousand, they don't fight. They try to seek to sort of gain advantage some other way. And so I'd anticipate China's rising and it's risen, it's continuing to rise, and it's going to try to get some advantage vis-a-vis Russia without fighting and it's, uh, but it's also then thinking about, you know, China's looking ahead to say, how do we continue? How do we get more, you know, we're much more powerful than we ever were in the past. We deserve a sphere of influence. We deserve exactly what every other great power has and we're going to take it. And, and that includes, you know, taking over Taiwan and, and Hong Kong and, and so forth as much as they can. And so um, they're gonna be asking for that and the incentives are aligned towards peace both with Russia and with the United States, but I think we have to recognize that this is a that the alternative to fighting is always settlement, and when our adversaries are more powerful, then settlement sometimes means often making concessions, and I think that's going to be the painful truth for Russia, and it's going to be the painful truth to the United States: is how do you make concessions to an incredibly powerful rival? Uh, and when the alternative is something so brutal, uh, like war and fighting. Would you enter one last thing, Christopher,
0: would you enter? And this is unfair. I know. Would you anticipate the Ukraine war going on for much longer? Or is that mm-hmm. going to be dependent on X factors?
1: So war is costly, right? This is the number one thing we, we talk about the whole time. And, and therefore um, these are powerful incentives for a settlement. And it's, it's, it, we forget that we forget that most wars don't happen and we forget that we often forget that when they do happen they're often relatively short and so I think that there's really powerful incentives for this fighting to settle down into a stalemate I don't think it'll happen in the next weeks for me the optimistic scenario realistically is that this looks like the next Kashmir which is that disputed territory that's existed for decades between India and Pakistan mm-hmm. uh, that that Russia, continues to occupy some measure of the east and south after these battles are resolved and the two sides settle down to not fighting they don't there's no official recognition of this just like there isn't an official recognition by Pakistan of India's rights to Kashmir but the good news in this somewhat bleak scenario is that they stop fighting and so children go to school and farmers plant their crops and then the and then and then the enemies get down to the thing that they do 999 times out of a thousand, which is enemies just lower than peace. Very good. Christopher
0: Bladman. the book is Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Thank you so much, Christopher. And uh, we, we look forward to, uh, well, your next effort, which I'm sure is going to be uh, very important to all of us uh, in this world of conflict. Great. Thank you. Thank you.